You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The title of my message is Jesus, the Greater Moses, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. One of the key themes in Matthew's gospel, and we have been working our way with Pastor Redberg through what we call the Sermon on the Mount as we started in Matthew 5 and work our way through. We've seen perhaps a little bit, but I just want to make sure it's codified in our minds because I think it's really important that one of the key themes in Matthew's gospel is showing that Jesus is indeed the greater Moses. And as my southern grandma says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so I'm just going to quote from Mark Dever because he says it better than I can. Mark Dever says it this way, quote, There are many subtle parallels to the life of Moses that are scattered throughout Matthew's gospel, such as miracles surrounding Jesus' infancy, turmoil with the ruler of the land, a massacre of male babies his age, his journey to and from Egypt, and his 40-day sojourn in the wilderness. Jesus even begins his teaching ministry on a mountain, subtly reminding readers of another mountain, that being Mount Sinai, end quote. So today, we return to the mountain where the greater Moses explains his relationship to the law of God. And even though I'm prone to superlatives, it's always the best cup of coffee and the prettiest sunset, and I don't think I'm overstating my case when I say that this particular passage, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, is really the key to unlocking the Sermon on the Mount, because what have we been saying, and Pastor Redberg has been saying it over and over again because it's right. The Sermon on the Mount is the way of the kingdom, not the way into the kingdom. In this little text, which for many is enigmatic, it's, it's confusing almost. What is Jesus saying? Why are we talking about law? It helps us understand both how we get in and the way of the kingdom. So here's what I'm going to argue for, and I'm going to say it slow, and I'm going to say it again because I realize now that I should have said this simpler, but it's in front of me and I can't change it. So here we are. If you were to say, Pastor Aaron, what is the main point of today's text? If, if I don't get anything else, what should I take away? It's this. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, if I were to boil it down, is this. As the greater Moses, King Jesus gives his people positional righteousness, and he calls them to practical righteousness. As the greater Moses, he gives them positional righteousness, meaning there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, his righteousness imputed to us grace. We go to bed not knowing what tomorrow will bring with peace because we know that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are not condemned. Amen. And He calls us to the ethic of the kingdom, which is practical righteousness. You have heard it said this, which is merely a superficial external obedience, but as my regenerated, adopted, spirit-indwelt 
kingdom citizens, elect and beloved and redeemed, I say to you that the law is applied much deeper, that it goes to the heart. And is that not the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, when it says, there is coming a day when I will write my law on their hearts and I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my statutes. That's what Jesus meant when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to pay for it all. Your way in the kingdom and your way of the kingdom. So, King Jesus gives us positional righteousness, calls us to practical righteousness. Number one, Jesus fulfills the law. How can this be? Number one, Jesus fulfills the law. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Now, an immediate question that pops up in our brains, if you've been reading, you know, from Matthew 5 on into the context, you go, well, who's saying that? Why would anyone think that you came to abolish the law or the prophets? Why would anyone assume that? Why would anyone think that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, came to do away with the law of Moses and the prophets, which the law and the prophets is just shorthand for all of the Old Testament? Why would anyone think that he came to do away with that and to undermine that? Well, beloved, let's not forget who we're dealing with. This is the Jew of all Jews, and yet he ate with sinners. He touched lepers, forgave prostitutes, healed on the Sabbath. The self-righteous Pharisees and scribes were so concerned with external obedience, they missed it. He says, the law has always, always meant to show you both that you can't and that you must go to Yahweh with open hands and say, forgive me, like David. He says, I can't make myself clean, but you can. That's an Old Testament Christian. Grace alone, faith alone. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, I've not come to abolish any of these things, but I've come to fulfill them. That same word is what you would use when you talk about prophecy being fulfilled. So what is Jesus saying? That, do, you, do you feel the weight of that statement? He says, everything in the Old Testament, Moses, the Torah, Psalms, Isaiah, the sacrificial system of Leviticus that all of us read with great fervor in our private devotions. We don't skip anything in that book, right? Lying in church. He says, everything, everything, I came to fulfill it. In Genesis, what do we see in Genesis 3.15? Right away in the beginning, we see man has sinned. And yet God gives a promise of a snake-crushing redeemer. And he covers them with animal skins not so subtly pointing to the fact that this Redeemer will provide a blood sacrifice to cover your shame. So immediately in the third chapter of Scripture, the drumbeat begins. How can man be brought back into the presence of a holy God? 
you go on to the book of Leviticus. What a wonderful, wonderful book. You go to Leviticus 16, and what do you find? You find the Day of Atonement. Don't skip that. It's all pointing to Jesus. He came to fulfill it. What do you see? Two goats. The die has been cast. One of them will be slaughtered to atone for the sin of the people, and the other one will have the hands of the high priest placed on his head, and he will lay the sins of the people symbolically upon him and send him into the wilderness away from the people. Propitiation, expiation, Jesus. Jesus is taking them to task, and he says, I didn't come to undo the law. I came to fulfill every word. It's all about me. Those 10 commandments, what does Hebrews 4.15 say? Praise God, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, yet without sin. He never, ever sinned. We stand in awe, this boy, David, who kills Goliath, but I assure you, that's not a story about us. That is merely a shadow of the greater David who would not kill just a Goliath, but who would kill sin, death, the grave, hell. You read the book of Proverbs. Is that not merely an exegesis of the perfect God-glorifying life of Jesus, the one who embodied wisdom itself? So when Jesus says, don't think that I've come to undo the law, your idea of law is external only. And God says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus not only obeyed externally, but it was always from a heart that says, I love you, Father, get glory for yourself, perfect, heartfelt obedience. You know, when J. Gresham Mason one of the hardest names to pronounce. I just did it. I think that was right. J. Gresham Mason, the founder of Westminster. He was going to go. He was sick. And they said, you shouldn't go and preach in South Dakota. But he says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So he went on a train ride. And lo and behold, he got sick. And his last words teletypes back this great stalwart of the gospel, J. Gresham Mason. What were his final words? What, what is on the mind of a saint who has spent his life preaching the Old Testament, the New Testament, showing how Christ has fulfilled it all? What gives him comfort at the point of death? His last words, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. What, what gave him confidence to fling himself into eternity? It was knowing that the law that thunders from Sinai that demands my perfect obedience has been fulfilled by the greater Moses, my elder brother, my savior, and my redeemer, and by faith in him alone. It is as if I have obeyed the law, and there is no condemnation for me. So come what may. It's a text like this that can help us look death in the eye and grin and say, he didn't come to undo the law, he came to fulfill it. And by faith in him, I'm justified. Jesus came to fulfill the law to give us positional righteousness. And not only that, number two, Jesus upholds the law. He upholds it. 
Look at verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, do you think, what, what is he saying? He's continuing the line of thought. Did I come to abolish the law? No. What is my relationship to the law? I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to live the life of perfection that my people can't. And I'm going to die the death that they deserve. Active obedience, passive obedience. But he's also saying, and I also am coming to uphold the fact that the law is good. You know, it's a travesty in our day that so many evangelicals are functional Martianites. <laughs> Not Martian like little green men from outer space. I know 2020 has been weird. It ain't that weird. We are functional Martianites, M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-T-E-S, Marcion. It's an early, early heretic in the early patristic era of the church who just couldn't fathom that this wrathful God of the Old Testament could be the same God of the New and so he built a wall between the Old Testament and the New. Now, do you realize why I say that we become functional Martianites? When we said, how often do you hear so subtly saying, I just want, I want the New Testament. I want, I want grace, but I don't know what to do with the Old Testament because, you know, I can't, I don't see grace there. What would Jesus say to that? He's like, I did not come to abolish it. I came to uphold it and fulfill it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us as New Testament Christians. And he was talking about the Old Testament. You say, well, how, how can I go to the Old Testament? How can I go to Moses? How can I go to law and command and imperative? And I'm going to be a Bible person. I'm, he didn't come to abolish it or do it away. He says it's going to remain that we are to be Bible people. So how do I go and enjoy the Old Testament rightly? Jesus tells us in Luke 24. In Luke 24, 44, to those downcast disciples who just didn't quite understand what all had taken place in Jerusalem. They didn't quite get where the Old Testament was going. And so Jesus comes along in his post-resurrection appearance and he says to them in Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Close your eyes and flip to a page of the Old Testament. And what will you find to a greater or lesser degree? Either by type or by shadow or by reference or even appearance you will find Jesus Christ. They missed it. They were looking at the law merely as external, gagging at gnats, not healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus again and again and again says, you don't understand. The Sabbath was not made for man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
The Old Testament is always pointing to a redeemer who would not only obey the law of God, but do it from a heart that says, I love you. Jesus fulfilled the law for his people. He gives them positional righteousness so that they stand forgiven before God. But look at verse 19. It's kind of a transition point in the text. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, whoever says, he says, will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So it seems to indicate he's talking about Christians who do this. Kingdom citizens who say, don't worry about the Old Testament. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about obedience. Don't worry about the law. has no place in our lives. Remember what Paul says in Romans 6.1 after he just got done talking about grace, grace, grace in Romans 5 and Romans 6.1. He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? What's his response? God forbid. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, immediately, red flag, is he talking about work salvation? We've already settled that. He says, I came to fulfill the law for my people so that by faith in Christ, they are positionally righteous. But are we antinomians? Are we lawless people? Jesus is our way into the kingdom by faith alone. And he says, you've been bought with a price. And this is the way of the kingdom. It's not lawlessness, but spirit indwelt, changed heart, God-glorifying, imperfect obedience to our master. Jesus upholds the law. We see it through a Christocentric lens. And he then calls us as saved, kingdom citizen, adopted, predestined, love, forgiven people to practical spirit and dwelt righteousness. So that's number three. Jesus fulfills the law, he upholds the law. And finally, number three, Jesus expands the law. He expands it. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees abused the purpose of the law by focusing on external obedience rather than internal obedience. Look at the rest of Matthew 5. What do you see? <clears throat> the entire chapter from here on out. Jesus gives six examples of how to not interpret the law. He uses the example of anger, lust, divorce, retaliation, loving your enemies, and oaths. And what does he say in each instance? He says, you have heard it said, scribes, Pharisees, rabbis, that it's all about external obedience only. But I say to you, my kingdom citizens, who are not working to earn your salvation, you've been redeemed. He says, but you've heard that, but... I say to you that it's not about just not committing physical adultery. It's about what goes on in your brain and what you treasure. So it's not just about not killing your enemy, but it's about loving him. Well, 
When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's two ways to look at that. We need perfect positional righteousness, which we obtain by faith in Christ. His righteousness far outseeds anyone's righteousness. And he's also saying at a practical level, Christians, we are called to a daily righteousness that exceeds the superficial, hypocritical, pharisaical righteousness that only focuses on externals. So all of that theology to come back to what we've probably said a million times, it's all about relationship and he wants your heart. And is this not the promise of the new covenant when he says in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Beloved, as we look at this text today, there's two things. Jesus is saying, the law demands perfection and I will live that life for my people. He says, and I will uphold it. I'm not doing away with it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm upholding it. The law is good. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. The law is good and holy. It's not a bad thing. But Jesus is saying, not only will I fulfill and uphold, I will put my spirit in you. That's the essence of regeneration. A new heart, new ears, new affections. So that when the greater Moses comes and calls his kingdom people to the mountain and says, pick up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. I bought you. Regenerate ears and regenerate hearts say, yes, Lord. My friends, Moses gives you a perfect law with no means of obeying it. But the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, fulfills the law for you and, and he gives you his spirit by which you obey the essence of the law, which Paul refers to in Galatians 6, 2 as the law of Christ. Love for God, love for neighbor. Don't complicate it. If I think I want to glorify God, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I want, to, I want to bring glory to the God who saved me. Is it enough to just not commit adultery but seethe with lust in my mind? No. The Spirit in me and in you convicts and shapes and conforms into the image of Christ in practical righteousness. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote these words, we, we think. They've also been attributed to Spurgeon and Luther. and Somebody wrote it of some import. I think it was John Bunyan. He wrote, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That's our text. So I ask you today, you're standing at the foot of one of two mountains. There is no carpool lane in life. There is no third way. 
Everyone everywhere, according to the biblical account, stands at the foot of two mountains. One is Sinai, and the words of Moses resonate in your ears, if not in your conscience. And what does the law tell us? We have broken the law of God, and we deserve punishment. And there's another mountain where a greater Moses, not just the law giver, but the law maker and fulfiller, says what in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You got a heavy conscience? You say, I can't even believe I'm in church today. I can't believe I'm watching this. If you knew what I did last night, my conscience is killing me. The words of the greater Moses says, come. And I'll give you rest. Not your best life now. I'll give you eternal rest. So that no matter how defiled and twisted you have become before a holy God, no matter how loud your conscience is calling out for your death, I will take that law from you and I will fulfill it on your behalf. And I will put my spirit in you so that 1 John, 3 is, 1 John 5, 3 is a reality in your life saying, Lord, your commands are no longer a burden for me. How can I doubt the call and the command of a perfect master who would die in my place? So I ask you, if you know, if you know that you're still standing at the foot of Sinai, the law is killing you, it's crushing you. It's telling you run, 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 but it doesn't give you any power to do so. And you know, you know judgment's coming. Would you even today Pray. Lay, lay hold of the promises of the gospel. All who believe on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you repent? Will you confess, I have broken a perfect law of a perfect God, and I know I deserve hell. But I heard today that there is a law fulfiller that will take my place. That this gnawing conscience can be silenced. Not because my sin is swept under a rug, but because my fine is paid. If you have not cried out to God, if you have not come to the greater Moses, come to him. Come to him today. Don't play games and don't halt between two opinions. Come. Church kids, come. New guests, come. Come and eat. Come and drink. Come and buy without price. And for my brothers and sisters... You say, I have come, and I have tasted that grace. But my heart convicts me constantly. All I ever see is my failure. All I ever feel is conviction. All I, can I just say something to you, Bruce Reed? Smoldering flax. Comparing Scripture to Scripture, it tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they don't want to. If you have the inclination to run, if you have the impulse to say, I don't want, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not settling for just external obedience. It's my thought life that's killing me. It's my heart that's killing me because I want to glorify God. Let me ask you, where did that come from? How did a dead sinner go from dead to that impulse if not for grace? Take hearts. He who began a good work in you, that law fulfiller and law keeper, 
on your behalf, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of his return. Which mountain do you stand at? I pray that you come to the feet of the greater Moses who fulfills the law on your behalf and puts his spirit in you and says, come, follow me. And may the response of your tender heart be, Lord, I come.